Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Psalm 108. Psalm 108. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. That's God's word for his people today. You may be seated. And let's pray now and ask again for God's help. So, Father, we long for the faith displayed in this psalm to be ours. That no matter what, we have steadfastness and hope and joy because of you. Because your steadfast love is great and your faithfulness never ends. So exalt yourself among us this day. Give us eyes to see your glory. And may your spirit be at work through your word in changing us from one degree of glory to the next so that we might know and glory and exalt in your greatness, we pray. Amen. Last weekend, fireworks uh, launched across the world as clocks struck midnight. And people celebrated the start of 2023 as the world stopped for a moment with this renewed sense of joy and hope, marking that entry into a new year. Uh, But now here we are, a mere eight days later, and I wonder if the excitement and revelry are still with you, or with those you work with, or go to school with, or live with, or are in your neighborhood, or those even you follow on social media. I mean, inevitably, the parties stop and the world gets back to business. And here in Michigan, we enter the long, dark January, where we wonder how long until we not only maybe feel the warmth of the sun again, but how long until we might actually see it? Because I don't know about you, but we're on a cloudy day streak already. And so with the holidays in the rearview mirror and real life in front of us, I wonder if Psalm 108 resonates with you or if we can be honest with each other for a moment. Maybe it annoys you. I know none of you would say God's word annoys you. But isn't there a little bit of how in the world is his heart so steadfast, right? Does that opening stanza of praise leave you thinking, well, that's nice for him. That's nice for these people. That's nice for David to have everything going so right for him that he's giddy in praise every single day of his life. But I live in the real world filled with economic uncertainties, with another highly contagious strand of COVID racing around the country, strife doctor's appointments on the horizon, war. 
and so many other realities we face living in this sin-ruined world. But that's actually why I've chosen to kick off our year with Psalm 108. Because the underlying sense of hope and joy that fills this psalm and the ones who sing it is characteristic of all of God's people, including you, Five Points. God's people are a people of abiding hope and confident joy. That's who we are. And that hope and joy are ours, not because of any circumstances that might come our way, not because of the world we live in, but because of our God who reigns over this world. And so I pray Psalm 108 becomes your anthem this year. No matter how you feel this morning, no matter what you face this morning, or will face this year. I pray your heart is steadfast, that your mouth filled with God's praise, your confidence brimming in God and his promises, your joy overflowing no matter what your circumstances, because you know deep down, no matter what, you believe with all your being the truth of verse 13, with God we shall do valiantly. With God we shall do valiantly. Now, when that's the thread woven through your life in high and low and good and bad, that with God I shall do valiantly, abiding hope and confident joy will be yours as it was David's. But maybe you're still a little bit skeptical and you think, well, again, maybe that's easy for the richest, most powerful man at that time to say, but I'm not David. You don't really know what I'm going through or facing. Well, Psalm 108 joins one section from Psalm 57 and another section from Psalm 60, both of those Psalms of David, to make a new song. And the superscriptions of those earlier Psalms, 57 and 60, describe the situations in which David wrote those Psalms. They weren't written in glorious times, but bleak ones. They weren't written in the palace, They were written in a cave. And so maybe you actually do have more in common with David than you first thought. And you may not be in a cave. In fact, I know none of you are. But you know what it's like to face dire and defeating circumstances. You know what it's like to not be able to see a way out. And Psalm 108 is old psalm sections put together for new times. It's an old song for a new day pointing God's people to remember God's past action to give them hope in a new situation. In other words, Psalm 108 is a new song for new times, but it looks to the same old God, the God who is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And those who sang Psalm 108 and prayed it in its original situation were, humanly speaking, in a moment where there was not much to be hopeful or joyful about. And yet, what do we see the first thing this psalm tells about that moment? Verse 1, my heart is steadfast. Dire, defeating circumstances, but my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. I mean, the arms of death are slowly closing around him, and yet he's steadfast. He's firmly established. He's unshaken in shaky times. Think of it like the floor beneath you right now. You weren't even thinking about it till I said something. You weren't worried about it when you uh, walked in here. You weren't thinking, I'm going to get swallowed up by a sinkhole at any moment. You just came in and sat down. Not one of you tiptoed around. 
hoping that the floor wouldn't give way. You strode in confidently and securely. But the thing is, there weren't any cracks in this floor. If there were giant cracks all around when you stood through that door, you probably would hesitate, wouldn't you, at the door? And that's kind of what David finds himself in. A moment where all he sees around him is dire, defeating cracks all around him. At any moment, everything is going to give way. What his eyes see should lead him to be shaking, not steadfast. But he's steadfast because of the God he's praising. This God who, Psalm 46 tells us, is a very present help in trouble, is our strength, is a refuge. Even if the world gives way, God will not let us go. He, he is steadfast because he is standing firmly in the help and refuge God gives. Even if that place goes into the heart of the sea, God will not let him go. And so he has nothing to fear. If that's true, he has nothing to fear. So he's steadfast. Friends, looking to the sovereign God, this sovereign God, who is this kind of present help and refuge and strength, turns what-ifs into even-ifs. He turns the what-ifs of life into confident even-ifs of life. What if Saul finds David in a cave? What if calamity or disaster or loss come in 2023? But looking to God turns those what-ifs into even-ifs. Even if Saul finds him in the cave, even if calamity, disaster, or loss come, God is a very present help and refuge. He will not let us go. So there's nothing to fear. That doesn't mean you need to continually tell yourself that throughout certain situations or at the beginning of each day. But it does not change the fact that no matter what you face, this God is over all. So there's nothing to fear. And now, when you're afraid, do you ever try to talk yourself out of it? With things like, there's nothing to be worried about. That's not going to help because there's lots of things to be worried about. Even yourself knows you're lying to yourself, right? There's lots of things to be worried about. Stop being silly. Or everything's okay. Or maybe you try to distract yourself to lessen the fear. Well, don't, don't think that's what David is doing here. He isn't taking his eyes off one fearful situation and trying to pretend there's nothing to fear and think about something else over on this side. He, he's not um, telling himself that, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of or stop being silly or trying to distract himself from the trials by occupying his time with other things. His heart is steadfast. His entire being surges with confident, joyous praise because he's looking to God. He's not, he, he's not letting those things cloud his view of the one who stands over them all. This God who is faithful. And you know he will continue to be faithful because his past faithfulness has never failed, which then frees David from anxious worry about his present circumstances. So he's not distracting himself. He's not talking to himself. He's not trying to pretend there's nothing really to worry about in his life. His entire being is engaged in worship because his looking to God has freed him from fear. There's no little part of him holding back. He is fully engaged with every ounce of his being in praising God. He, he's not trying to distract himself. 
because there's no part of him that needs distracting. He's all in with God. So much so that he commands inanimate objects to wake up and help him praise God. You see that? He's so confident in who God is that he's telling his harp and lyre to get up and help him praise God. He has so much confidence and life surging through him in this moment. So much joy. I mean, it's brimming out of him that even in the midst of life-threatening times, he commands his instruments to come to life and help him praise God. He seems like an idiot at the moment, doesn't he? He's in a cave. I mean, one, who brings a harp into a cave? But, I mean, let's just forget that for a moment. He, he's telling these things that cannot come to life to come to life and help him praise God. That's how confident he is in this God. And it seems foolish. And so does being this confident and hopeful in circumstances like the ones he's in. But the only foolish thing to do is to not look to and trust in God. To not look to and trust in God is more foolish than telling instruments that can't come to life to come to life. And not only that, he's going to awake the dawn. Now, if you know how normal things work, dawn usually wakes up the world, doesn't it? But David is going to turn the tables on the sun, and he's going to wake up the sun with his roaring praise. He's so confident and hopeful in who God is that he is going to make the universe stand on its end. He's going to wake up the dawn. The dawn will not wake him up. I mean, even if I shout right now with my microphone on, people in their cars on Walton can't hear me. But David feels such hope and joy just bursting out of him that he's going to so fully praise God, it's going to feel like he's going to be able to wake up the sun. I mean, what's gotten into David? Remember, he's in a dark, dank cave. He's not even in, in a place with a roof as high as this one that we're in right now. And he is going to wake up the sun. What's gotten into David? God has. A few Saturdays ago, I almost woke up the neighborhood when, at the conclusion of a certain football game, when Michigan beat Ohio State, I roared with joy. So much so that you can ask my son, I slipped and fell, jumping around with joy. It didn't even hurt. It hurt later and for the rest of the week, but in that moment, it didn't. I was jumping and shouting for joy. I was so filled with confidence last Saturday when they go into their playoff game. And I roared again at the beginning of the game when our running back broke through free on a huge run for their first drive of the game. But just a few hours later, what happened? My hope and joy lay shattered when they lost. Now, that's a somewhat silly example, I admit, for my ultimate hope and joy is not in sports or teams, especially ones that let you down so often. But I do find enjoyment in it, and that's okay. We all find enjoyment in certain things. The problem is when we start making the things we enjoy our ultimate hope, our ultimate trusts. I am tempted to find hope and joy in other things in this world, as are you. And if we look to anything other than God for them, inevitably our hope and our joy will lay shattered around us. But abiding hope and confident joy can be and will be yours even when really uh, meaningful things in your life lay shattered around you. You can still be steadfast like David when your hope is God. And verse 4 tells us why. For your, that's God's, steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. 
That word for steadfast love is the word for God's covenant love, his promise-keeping, promise-making, never-failing love. It will never run out, nor does anything compare to it in all the universe. And that unfailing love is yours when this God is your God. And I love being your pastor, but I'm not omnipresent nor omnipotent. I can't be with you, and I can't promise you, even if I am, happen happen to be with you in a time of trouble, I don't have the strength to uh, make that everything okay. But God, you're never out of his reach. You see that? His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. When you're on a plane, if you, if you fly, and about the highest you fly on a plane is 35, 37,000 feet you're still only 7% of the way to outer space. And that's a, and, and I don't know, I don't think any of you are about to fly a rocket and actually go up with Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and fly on a rocket to outer space. But even then, you're barely, you're barely there. But God's, God, his faithfulness reaches to the clouds, like beyond, anywhere we can reach. And because he can, You'll never be in a place where you find his love has been exhausted or his faithfulness failing. You can't get there. You'll never come to a spot, no matter what it feels like, that God's love has run out for you, that his arm is too short to extend his faithfulness to you. And because this God is our God, David's first ask, his first desire in this prayer is not his deliverance. That's, that's amazing. David's in a spot where he needs deliverance, and yet his first petition in this prayer, even though he's on a cave, uh, in a cave on the, on the run for his life, is not his deliverance, but for God to be exalted. He almost doesn't care if he ever gets out of that cave as long as God is exalted, because how amazing is this God? He's the only thing that matters. His glory is the only thing that matters. His purposes and his name being praised is the only thing that matters. And so whether or not I ever get out of this cave, God, may your name be exalted. May your glory be lifted up. May your name be praised. And I want, and I hope you do, to walk that steadfastly, that hope-filled, that joyful, praising path that is laid out for us in Psalm 108. That that God is all I'm consumed with. Even at the expense of how I want my life to go or how I think my circumstances should be. And to walk that path, the first step we take is humility. The first step we take is humility, to submit your life and whatever providences God brings into it so that God is supremely exalted in this world. If he wants to stick me in a cave, well, he'll give me the grace to, to walk through those days. If he wants to deliver me, then he'll give me the grace to see his deliverance come. That no matter what, I want to be used for his glory. I don't sit here and demand God be used for my glory. That I don't fit God into my timeline, that I fit my timeline into God's. He situates his life in God's grand purposes. He's not whining. He's not fretting. He's not saying, God, you promised I would be king. Here I am sitting in a cave with the, the king trying to kill me. 
He's not fretting about it. He's not anxious about it. He situates his life in God's grand purposes. He knows God is God, and he isn't. So he doesn't demand God serve him. He, a- he asks God to use him any way God chooses so that God's glory fills the earth. He wants people, even the ones who are trying to kill him, here in verse uh, 3, he wants everyone, enemies and friends, to gather around him and praise God so that people everywhere see God's glory and worship alongside him. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of faith I long for as 2023 begins. It's, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? David's entire existence at this moment fits inside a cave. God, God promised him a throne that would never end and a kingdom that would, that would spread out across the world. And yet his entire kingdom at the moment fits in a few square feet inside a dank cave and all he's got around him is a few friends. And yet his prayer fills heaven and earth. He envisions worldwide praise of a gloriously exalted God. And so we ask, how? Like, how? How is this kind of steadfast faith possible? Well, it begins by not only then humbling ourselves before this God, but then by grabbing hold of God's promises. Grabbing hold of God's promises. Look at verse 7. God has promised in his holiness, with exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Uh, those are kind of weird verses, right? Especially the ones at the end, right? Uh, what is David doing here in this cave? Remember, he's in this tiny cave, and yet he's praying these promises that God made about the covenant land that God would give his people. It, it's this land that would be Israel's the promised land, but it's not yet theirs. And yet he's still grabbing hold of this promise and praying it back to God, that God would drive out their enemies in defeat. And this shows us, first of all, why David can pray this promise back to God. Because God is God over all, not just Israel, Judah and Ephraim, Manasseh, Gilead, but but also all the earth. He reigns supreme over all, even those who don't recognize it. So yes, Israel, that promised land belongs to God, but so does everything and everyone in all the world. Everything, all things exist to serve God and bring him glory. And that's the point of verse 9. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Uh, it, It sounds like Uh, what athletes do uh, in the lead-up to a game. They're talking trash. I'm not saying God's a trash-talking God, but he's talking smack to his enemies here, isn't he? I mean, you're my wash basin. It's kind of weird. You wouldn't hear an athlete say that today. But, you know, like, I don't think any lion's going to say to Aaron Rodgers this afternoon, upon you I cast my shoe. I mean, it's kind of weird. But that's what's happening, right? What's a wash basin? It's what was used... Uh, for the masters of the homes, uh, when they came home from work from a long day, their servants would bring them this pot to wash their hands and feet with, to wash off the dirtiness. It was a menial task. Or like my kids, when they come home from school and they just flick their shoes off, and you know, we tell them, I'm not picking up your shoes anymore. Go down there and clean them up. 
Well, back then, that's not what happened. Servants went around and picked up after the masters of the house. And that's what's going on here. They will look up. All God's enemies will one day look upon the one who will ultimately defeat every enemy and who shout over them in triumph, who will use them for his glory. That even in these purposes where they are railing against him, they are his servants being used for his glory. And so David's abiding hope and confident joy don't come from what he can see. He says, I shout in triumph over Philistia. But right now, the Philistines are shouting in triumph over him. His confidence and his joy and his hope don't come from what he can see, but from what God has said. You want to have this kind of steadfastness, we have to stop living by what we can see and start living by what God has said. Living your life by what you can see is a recipe for hopelessness, especially if you want to watch the news. In fact, I think it's part of their money-making business to keep you hopeless. You keep living by what you see, you're going to be hopeless. But what is more true for David than the things he sees around him, which are very real, is God's holy word. And you see, it's not just that a promise has been made. He says, God, you've promised. But it's not just that a promise has been made. For how many promises have been uttered in this world since it began? And how many of those promises have been broken? And how much destruction has been left behind in the wake of those broken promises? If you want to be steadfast in a world filled with broken promises, you must trust the source of your promise that you stake your life upon. Which is why verse 7 doesn't only say God has promised, which would be enough, I want to say. God promising is enough. God said it, done. But look what God does to fuel our hope in it, to fuel our steadfastness in it. He adds, in his holiness. In his holiness. God has promised in his holiness. The steadfast, hopeful, joyful faith is ours because of who God is. Because of who who the one is who uttered these promises. He's holy. He cannot sin or fail. And since he is holy, his promise will come to pass, even if all we see and know at the moment seems to say otherwise. But this right here, this moment right here is where most of us fail to drive our faith deeper. And we actually never say along with David in verse 1, I am steadfast, because right here we fail to drive our faith deeper. We get stoic in these moments. We detach from life. We distance ourselves from God in these moments rather than go deeper, which is exactly what David does. He goes deeper. While our tendency is to detach or put distance between ourselves and the moments we're living in, he doesn't throw his hands up in these moments and say, well, I'm just going to let, let God be God. He's sovereign. I'm going to stop, step back. And I'm going to go about my day or I'm going to spout religious cliches. So he doesn't have to live in the tension of having a faithful God, but in a world where it seems like God has failed. So where do we go? How do we drive faith deeper? What are God's people to do in moments like those? Well, what does David do? He prays God's promises back to him. He prays God's promises back. Like when my kids remind me that I said they could have ice cream after dinner when I start to waver on letting them open the freezer. They're like, you promised. 
Well, we too, as God's children, pray God's promises back to him. Now, not in the way that we pray or or, uh, remind parents of promises, because I forget. So God has not forgotten. God's not like an earthly father in that in which he he forgets the things he says. But we pray God's promises back to him because we need the grace to keep believing his holy word. You've said it. I don't see it. I can't see how it's going to happen. God, you've said it. Help. You promise. But everything around me seems to say the opposite. Everything around me makes me ask, how? How will you fulfill your promise? Who is going to do it? You see, David doesn't ask if, which is what most of us then do. If we don't detach, or we don't distance ourselves, or we don't try to distract ourselves, or tell ourselves not to be afraid, or all the other things we try to do to cope with situations like this, many of us then begin to ask if. Is it ever going to happen? I don't think it is. Because of this, well, it must not be coming. We don't ask if, and neither does David. He asks how. How? Asking if is, is a way of doubting God's word is actually true. But when you start to pray God's promises and you ask how, that's because you know God won't fail. And so David sees things not working out like he thought they would. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, this is not how I thought this was going to go? This isn't how I thought God would fulfill his promises or purposes. So David sees things not working out like he thought they would, but that doesn't crush his faith. It fuels it to keep on believing that God won't fail. So when God does act, it will be glorious. And David prays this to God. He prays this to God, which is an act of faith. We, we tend to think that asking questions of God... Uh, it, may, it means our, weak is, our faith is weak or failing if, if we question God. Like questions like, how? What's going on? Why is it looking like this all around me? We, we tend to think questions like that prove our faith is weak or failing. But the opposite is true. Going to God, as we're taught to do, by God himself, because Psalm 108 is his word. Going to God is an act of faith that strengthens it. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 10. David reminds himself and God of God's promises in verses 7 to 9. And then in verse 10, he asks God, who? You've said this. All around me is defeat. None of it looks like your promises are being fulfilled. So who? Who will accomplish your purposes? Who will bring me to the fortified city, the the city of his enemies that they're occupying right now? Who's going to defeat these enemies you said would be defeated? Who will lead me to Edom? Who's going to throw their shoe upon Edom? Who's going to shout over my enemies in triumph? Because you didn't go out with our armies, and so we got routed. Our enemies are shouting in triumph. If you're going to shout over your triumphs, who? How? In verse 11 there, right? God didn't go out with them. So God, it feels like you've rejected us. And if you've rejected us, then you can't keep your promise. But that can't be true. You will keep your promise. And this is right here when we see how questions like this deepen our faith. They help us see we have nowhere else to go but God for help and salvation. Asking these kind of questions reveals 
reveals we have nowhere else to go. And when you have nowhere else to go but God, that deepens your faith, not weakens it. Look at verse 12. (laughs) You promised. We got our rear ends kicked. (laughs) You not going out with us. I'm sitting in a cave. Everyone's coming against us. Enemies are shouting. Life is not good. You promised. How, who? Then he says this. Oh, God. Grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. You see where he gets in his questioning? I can't turn anywhere else. Vain is the salvation of man. It's not faithless to cling to God's promises and speak them back to him. It will deepen your faith. Turning away from God in these moments is faithless. Turning to him deepens your faith. And that's what we see here at the end of Psalm 108. David pleads with God because even when all his eyes see is a cave bearing no resemblance to the promises God made him, he knows he has nowhere else to turn. Vain. Vain is the salvation of man. Worthless. Empty. Nothing. And think about all the places you normally turn in these kinds of moments when the reality of a faithful God but a world in which it seems like he's not with you where do we normally turn well one place we often turn to in times like these is inward forget everyone else I'm just I'm going to take it myself I don't need anyone else I can do it myself take matters into my own hands if not God then me who will lead me to the fortified city I will I'll get smarter, work harder, get more money, do this, do that, whatever I need. I will make the world into my image. Or we turn to other people or places or things to attempt to shape the world how we want it. What about you? In these moments where everything looks dire and defeated, where do you turn? Where are you tempted to turn? What is your hope when everything seems against you? even God. When what wells up within you is not that steadfast, brimming confidence, but have you not rejected us, O God? Who? How? Well, in moments like these, we turn to God, and we pray his word back to him, saying, if not you, who? It's not a question of God. It's it's asking God to fulfill his promise. No one else can. There is no one else, so you. For vain, worthless, hopeless, empty, flimsy, temporary is the salvation of men and the things of this world. And if you know that there is no hope in anything or anyone else, you're at the place where God will strengthen your faith in him, no matter what you see. When you know you have nowhere else to go, and nothing else but God will do, and then set your eyes upon him, upon this God who is steadfast. He is steadfast in love. That love is never failing. It's bigger than the universe. This God whose faithfulness is unfailing and extends to anywhere you could go and even further. When you set your eyes on this God, you will find steadfast hope and joyful confidence more and more yours, just like David did. And I don't mean 
in, uh, in an easy way, like you pop a vitamin in the morning and all of a sudden you're just going to be brimming with confidence every time, every moment. I don't mean that. I mean, this abiding hope and confident joy will be more and more yours. Not maybe the first time you won't be like, well, I don't feel like waking up the sun right now. But the more and more you walk this path and not go by what you can see, but what God has said. And what, not just what you've seen, but God's past faithfulness and his promises to remain faithful. And you continue to walk down that path this year of 2023. As the days turn into weeks and the weeks into months, the abiding hope and confident joy David expresses will not just be something you hope for, but will be your experience by the grace and strength of God. The words of verse 13 won't just be a hopeful prayer. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, in the reality of life, you will have to preach to yourself this verse because it won't feel true. But the words of verse 13 as you continue to walk down this path with Psalm 108, won't just be a hopeful prayer. They will be more and more yours each day, that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. I don't, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of hope and joy I want each day this year. That even in a broken world, and even when I can't see it, that my God is the God who never stops loving me and will never fail to accomplish his good and glorious purposes, no matter what. Abiding hope and confident joy when your hope is God alone. That's what I want. And that's what I want for us this year. And it's with God and God alone that that can be true. For with God and God alone, we will do valiantly. But it's with God and God alone. And that's, all, that's also when we begin to diverge from David at times, isn't it? As 2023 begins, what will make it a happy new year for you? What will make it a good year? Wealth? Health? Power? We're with God. It's God and God alone that we will do valiantly. You see that? With God. I'm not saying any of those things might be nice or that they're not good gifts that a good father often gives and that we shouldn't pray for people who are sick. Those aren't, that's not what I'm talking about. Again, I'm talking about your ultimate hope. As 2023, in 12 months from now, when we start 2024 and you look back on 2023, what would you say that, that was a good year? If your hope is anything other than God, you will not do valiantly. You will be longing for hope, looking for joy, seeking, seeking this kind of confidence and never finding it. But if your ultimate desire for God to be exalted, for his glory to shine above all, for your neighbors and the nations to worship him with you, then you will be steadfast each day because your life and your year will be aligned with God's purposes. And if your life and 2023 is aligned with God's purposes, then it will be a good year because God cannot fail. There will be days when you wander along with David, though. How and who? There will be days 
when you put your life in God's hands, when all you seem to have is nothing but God's holy promises. Have you ever felt like that? I've lost everything. Everything's not going my way. All I, ha- all I can cling to is God and his holy promises. Yet even there, you can be steadfast because that's exactly where David is. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And if your life is given over wholly to God and his purposes, then your life will not fail. It will not come to nothing. It will not amount to anything, nothing, because God will use it for his glory. So with God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And one last uh, point of confidence here, because it's here at the end where we see Christ more, most clearly in Psalm 108. How do we know that no matter what, God, with God we shall do valiantly and that he will tread down our foes? Because Christ came to earth to tread down our great foes, sin and death. And because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, there's coming a day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Revelation gives us this vision of worldwide praise, this vision we see that along with David, who in his little cave was so confident in this God that he says, I will give thanks among the peoples. I will sing praises among the nations. Even though he, nothing he could see would cause him to believe that could be true, he believed the promise. And this Savior, who uh, will be worshipped by all nations, is coming. That's our future. This day is coming when a worldwide people from every tribe and tongue will sing praises to God. That's our future, and it will not be stopped, no matter what 23 holds for you. So if God has done all this, including giving us his very son, how will he not also give us all things? How will he not fail to keep any promise? He will accomplish every purpose. And because of that, our hearts can be steadfast. And so brothers and sisters, in the midst of the turmoil of our year, turmoil we don't even know yet, circumstances that are coming your way that we're oblivious to right now, your hearts can be steadfast if this God is your God. And may your hearts be steadfast. May abiding hope and confident joy be yours. As by grace, God helps you to set your hearts upon him, the sovereign, holy, covenant God, with whom and whom alone we shall do valiantly. Let's pray. Our Father, this kind of faith seems foolish in our world. but we know it's not. Not because we're smarter or have got it all figured out finally, but because of your steadfast love shown to us supremely in the giving of your Son. And it's as we come to this table that we remind ourselves that if you have done such things as conquer our greatest enemy, sin and death, then every enemy of yours will be tread down one day. 
and that until that day your church is here to sing your praises among the peoples, to live out this kind of joyful, confident, foolish-looking hope so that your name might be exalted among our neighbors and the nations. And so we pray this year that you would fuel our faith by turning our eyes upon you, that we would humble ourselves at the beginning of this year to situate our lives into your timeline, to be willing to be used any way you choose so that you would be exalted over all the earth, that you would be worshipped among all the nations, among our neighbors, among all the peoples of the world, would come to know you. And we long for the grace and strength we need to persevere until the end, for it is often in this world that it seems like your purposes are failing, that we are alone. And so remind us this day, as we gather around this table, that because of the body and the blood that was shed for us, we will never be separated from you no matter what. And that if you have given us your son, you will also graciously give us all things to accomplish your purposes. So be with us, we pray. And help us now as we reflect upon your son. The joy we have knowing that one day, what we see in part around this table, we will experience in full. And until that day, we, as we long and wait and seeing come, Lord Jesus, give us grace, grace, we pray, to continue to wait with our hope fully on you. For the name of our Savior and your exalted glory, we ask. Amen.